Hey everybody, I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club. Thank you so much for coming today. We are talking about how the world of startup PR is getting so much more difficult. It used to be that every funding round, every product launch seems to be getting splashed in coverage and things like TechCrunch, but suddenly it's gotten a lot more difficult. There's so many more startups out there in the world, so many, and people are just getting tired of that same old formulaic X raises Y to do Z kind of story. And so tonight we have some amazing guests. We have Matthew Panzerino, the editor-in-chief of TechCrunch, and Margo Edelman, the GM of Edelman PR, one of the biggest giants in startup PR. And we're going to be asking them about what they're seeing in the market, what's changing, and what their best tips are for you to be able to break through the noise and get your startup covered. So Matthew, maybe you could just jump in and tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the market. Like, What is it like for startups trying to get uh, uh, press coverage right now? And what are you guys seeing at TechCrunch in terms of like the influx of story pitches? I mean, what's been changing? Well, I mean, it's the market's insane right now, which is not a surprise to anybody who follows it. Um, obviously, on the investor side, everybody's competing with uh, Tiger, uh, sort of chasing around the sort of sheer volume of <laughs> funding events that are coming out. There is a, an enormous amount of money in the ecosystem and in the sphere, which means a lot of funding events. Uh, uh, funding events, obviously, are not the only thing that should be pitched and in should be talked about by a company, but often they're used as a hook, which is organic. You know, it's pretty natural for the ecosystem. Uh, but we're seeing so many of them that the volume is just simply pretty overwhelming. Um, you know, we get, I'll get on average about two to 3,000 emails a day personally. And I know some of my writers are more or less depending on their areas of coverage, you know, and obviously they're being more directly pitched. Uh, but then in terms of funding events, we're seeing anywhere between two to three dozen a week um, that are sort of seeking, uh, you know, press or, or publicity or, or to be talked about. Um, so the sheer volume of it is pretty overwhelming. Um, and then there are certain spaces, of course, that uh, that are, are kind of booming right now, but we can probably talk about that more later. Wait, how many pitches do you think people are getting now? Because I know that sometimes I felt like I was getting hundreds of emails a day when I was at TechCrunch uh, about product launches, uh, funding rounds, and lots of things that probably don't really qualify as news at all. There's a lot of noise, so it's hard to filter out what's a legitimate pitch versus what's you know, kind of churning through some sort of Sysian merge database um, and kind of hitting your inbox. So I'm not saying that each one of these are individual, you know, crafted pitches um, or even expected outcomes. You know, a lot of times they're sort of uh, scattershot, you know, just blasted out. Um, but in terms of people, react, you know, reaching out to reporters, absolutely hundreds a week, you know, for every reporter on, on TechCrunch's staff. That's wild, because yeah, I mean, if you can think of how long they actually have to have to be able to parse those types of pitches, you really start to realize why it's so hard to break through and actually get presses. Like most of these writers probably only get to spend a few seconds looking at each pitch before they even decide whether they might possibly be interested in it. Uh, Margo, so you're the GM of Edelman PR, one of the biggest tech uh, PR firms in the world. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what your clients are seeing. Like, is it really getting harder? Are conversion rates uh, for pitches to start up press getting uh, you know, lower rates of return now? That's a good question. I mean, listen, I think if you are raising a lot of money, you are a company that is, you know, a breakthrough company and a disruptor in the industry, um, you're raising from, you know, really great VCs, you're going to get coverage. Um, so I, I do think, you know, a lot of the companies that we work with, um, we absolutely will get coverage for. It's just a question of the extent to which we will. Um, so we've changed our strategies a little bit. Um, so before it was kind of like, okay, if you're raising a significant round, go broad, 
go to every reporter. Now, a lot of times what we're doing is doing exclusives. Um, so for example, if we're like, okay, if you want a Bloomberg or you want a Wall Street Journal, um, we recommend doing an exclusive. For example, go to Bloomberg and then also do Bloomberg TV. You know, do them both as an exclusive. And then from there, you can do broader outreach. But we do think sort of that exclusive route is a way to guarantee coverage with a really good publication. So that's something we absolutely recommend now. Um, and then also um, another tip is just owned media. So like it's so important to have a good strategy for LinkedIn, for having sort of, you know, influencers in the market, whether it's the VCs investing in you, uh, whether it's, you know, a lot of, you know, startup founders have friends who are, you know, very well known in the industry. Like make sure that whatever article you get is, you know, shared on LinkedIn. It's tweeted out a bunch of times. Um, so it's not just about getting that article. It's about making sure you have like a social strategy around it. And then also like don't underestimate just having a great LinkedIn presence or owned content presence for your own company. So you can kind of self-publish and get the, get the messages out that you want. Um, that's another important strategy now. All right, so I want to rewind a little bit. So we're here on Press Club where we talk to the biggest names in tech about the biggest issues. And you know, we're talking about how much tech PR and press has changed. You know, it seems to me like 10 years ago, you really could have this sort of server burning growth that would come out of PR because it felt like there was only a few stories each week. All these early adopters were hungry for news in the, in the space. There really wasn't this, these giant tech companies like Facebook that are constantly in the news absorbing all the attention. And, you know, people just weren't really exhausted by all of the news about startups. They were still the underdog, right? Uh, and now it feels like growth is so much harder to attain through these kind of uh, these channels. Margo, can you tell us a little bit about how you think about that uh, in terms of PR? You know, is, is PR an actual growth channel anymore? Or is it better for things like recruiting, fundraising, partnerships? Whereas, you know, because the market is so fragmented, there's so many outlets, so many stories, it's harder to actually get growth that moves the needle uh, just from PR. Totally. I think PR has to be part of a strategy. It's not the strategy for growth. Um, so there's a lot of other strategies, obviously, including having a great sales team, having a great content marketing strategy. I think where, you know, traditional PR is in like news articles in the journal, the New York Times, Bloomberg, TechCrunch, et cetera, come in is making the overall case for why your company matters. Um, and then ideally sort of having a few customers, for example, if you're an enterprise tech startup, speak to the reporter as well to, again, showcase, you know, really demonstrate why your product moved the needle for the customer and why it's beneficial for others. So it's not necessarily going to generate growth. It's going to generate almost that air cover. So when somebody then sort of sees an online ad for your company or somebody, um, you know, uh, you know. Uh, you know, here, here's about it. They can go online, Google it. And they're like, oh, wow, this actually looks really cool. Oh, wow. This is actually going to serve the, you know, the needs that I have. Let me go check it out. Um, so I think it's, it's a little bit more about air cover than it is about growth, but I think both are part of, you know, a, a core marketing strategy for any company. Matthew, what do you think about how you know tech news has changed in terms of its ability to actually drive growth over time? Is that still really the thing most people are coming to for uh, to TechCrunch for? And is that what they actually get when they get a story that, that does happen to go well, if they do pitch something worth covering? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think people often do view us as, well, at least here, let's put it this way. If I was going out and pitching somebody um, on coming to us for a story, which, you know, I still have to do know that. We still we still have to go after stories, obviously, and say, hey, I really want to tell the story of this startup. I really want to talk about your company. I think it's fascinating. And, you know, most times 
it's agreeable, right? But sometimes it's not. Oh, we're not, we're not quite ready or it's too early. You found out about us. How'd you find out about us? You know, that thing happens, right? Um, and when I'm pitching someone on why they should come to us, the, there's really kind of like the three major things that have remained relatively constant. One, follow-on funding right? Obvious. If, if you are talking about a funding round or talking about money, or frankly, even not talking about money, just talking about your product, it's going to help you fundraise down the line because you have a kind of record of what you're up to and some discussion about it. And hopefully if the writer's is smart and you know, writes a, a good story, you're going to have some sort of narrative out there about why you're special. Uh, and that's hugely important and incredibly valuable when it comes to going down and asking somebody for money. The second is recruiting. So the recruiting angle is still incredibly strong. And this goes from, you know, honestly, from the moment you get any seed or follow on funding and a series A on down to IPO. Every time you open your mouth to a publication, you should be talking about the problems that you have to solve, how hard they are, how difficult they are, how unique they are, how cool they are, um, how challenging they may be. Because over and over again, that's the story that we know to be true, is that the hardcore engineers, the people, the designers, the, the product managers, and everybody on down the line to HR and everybody else, they want to obviously get paid. They want to pay their bills. They want to get attached to something that's going to help them do that. But then the step beyond that is they want the problem that they're trying to solve to be unique and interesting and compelling because the fact is that they have all the options in the universe. They could go down the street and get employed by Facebook. They could go down the street and get employed by another startup, whatever the case may be. That They have options. So you need to be selling them on that. And that's one thing that a story about the problems that you have to solve can help you do. And then the third is that the narrative about your company and what direction your company is headed, if you have that straight and if you talk about it publicly early on, it really helps your momentum down the line if the narrative doesn't change. Now, obviously, sometimes it's awkward because there's a public record of what you wanted to do. And then you, <laughs> you know, end up pivoting or, you know, screwing up in execution and things happen. And then you're like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we were doing that, but now we're doing this. But it really helps narrative wise because it can help you convince everybody involved in your company like speaking to the internal people in your company when you're speaking to the press to help them understand what your mission is, to help them to see that you're elucidating it well and talking about it well in the public and that you have a vision. And if that public vision aligns with the private vision that they see, you've got employees, you've got loyalists, you've got obsessives for life. And obviously if they misalign or if they don't align, you just fucked yourself, you know, but that's on you. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It seems like those are really the major gains that you get from PR. It's not growth anymore. And people need to remember that. It's like you have to build products that grow themselves. You need to build a holistic growth strategy, uh, which involves, involves a lot of other types of marketing than just PR. But what you can really get out of it is that fundraising FOMO. Suddenly everyone knows there's buzz about you. Uh, you know, investors are going to assume that their competitors are also reading that press and are going to come knocking. And so they're going to want to get to you first. So you can kind of get that, you know, drive that herd mentality. And the recruiting thing is huge. You know, when I find when I'm working with startups in our portfolio and signal fire, that's mainly the thing that they want. Usually it's like they're going out for press right after they raise some money. And so maybe they can get, you know, they can worry about that fundraising momentum later, but now they have the cash. They really need that help with recruiting and being able to tell a story about why you're a rocket ship, why you have interesting problems to solve, why this company is going to grow underneath you seems to be super compelling. And you finally have like a third party proof point that you can point to 
when you're in those discussions and you're in that hiring process, you can say, look, we're not the only ones who think that this is real and this has potential. You can point to that press. Uh, and you know, you do have to compete with big tech money, like you mentioned. It seems like you know because these big tech companies can pay a lot more, you, know, you really need to be selling the story of why your equity is going to be valuable, or at the very least, why you're going to be doing a compelling job that's not just rearranging tiny pixels, but solving real problems for a big market. And that seems like what you can get through uh, this. The, the third thing that I do find you can also get from PR is partnerships. You know, you might not be hitting the you know millions and millions of readers, but what you are going to hit are the people who are the most tuned in, who are often the people who make their business to know what's going on in the in the industry. And so business development, partnerships, you may be able to reach those big uh, decision makers who suddenly will say, oh, we're going to give you the time of day. We'll take that meeting because we read about you in TechCrunch. And that seems super valuable. Uh, I want to hear a little bit about the risks of startup PR. It seems like a lot of people just assume it's always good unless you're very purposefully trying to be stealth. But are you do you like are there reasons why you dissuade people from trying to do PR, Margot, and say like, hey, we're your PR agency and we don't think you should do PR yet? That's a great question. I mean, truthfully, we absolutely sometimes say, you know, we think we should work together at a later point. Um, so, you know, if a company, you know, for example, if they are, um, you know, pretty early, early on, they don't yet maybe have a product, um, they don't have a head of comms, um, we'll absolutely say, hey, you know, it seems really interesting what you're doing. Can we stay in touch and we can work together, you know, once, you know, once you, you're a little bit further along? Um, just because, again, if you don't have a product, um, and you don't, and, and also you don't have customers yet, it's really hard to tell good stories. Um, because at this point you're just sort of telling, you know, you're just telling stories about what could be rather than what, what's already happened. Um, so that's, that's a lot harder. Um, and I think at this point, like, you know, I think you really do need users or customers, um, and you need to have sort of product market fit in order to, um, I think really have a, you know, compelling, um, you know, ability to, to, you know, tell stories beyond just funding rounds. Um, so that's typically, you know, my advice is, you know, let's, let's work together once, once you have those things. Yeah, it sounds like people are pretty tired of just that funding story. So like if you haven't done anything yet, if you haven't built the product, if you're not actually helping people, it's going to be tough to tell a compelling story other than they raised this much money and people are like, cool, money's everywhere at this point. Exactly. And I, I mean, I remember I, um, I had a reporter tell me, okay, Margo, like, ex you know, please tell your clients existing is not news. Like the fact that the company still exists, the company is still doing well, that, you know, that's not news. Um, you know, bring me news. So that's, that's a lot of times what I tell companies as well is like, we need to, we need to have news. We need to be putting something out there into the world that would be in some way moving the market or, you know, be, be important beyond just that you still exist. Matthew, have you seen some like horror stories of what's happened when companies kind of like purposefully go out to pitch and get PR prematurely? Like some of the things I always think of are like, first, it's just a huge distraction to founders. Like you're not taking the time to build your product. You're out there trying to pitch. Uh, you you might expose your kind of secrets or your secret sauce and give up some of that head start by cluing in your competitors to what you're doing. And you just might not be ready for that growth. Like your engineering isn't ready and the whole service implodes on the back end, or you don't have the sort of sales team to actually service all of these leads that are coming in and you kind of just burning them because they just feel like you're unresponsive uh, or you, know, you just don't have the onboarding process for users themselves. You know, they like, they don't really understand. They don't get educated about how the product works. And so you weren't really ready for massive growth. And it feels like kind of like how Twitter burned a huge number of users, hundreds of millions of people because their onboarding was so bad, but they were getting so much press attention because they were getting mentioned in the media all the time. People would go check it out, wouldn't understand what to actually do with the service. And it's actually a lot harder to get them to come back than to get 
get them to come for the first time. Uh, any of those kind of like horror stories or things that point out as risks to doing PR prematurely? Yeah, I mean, all of the things that you said are definitely factors. I think the biggest thing to be aware of and to be sort of ready for is that you actually believe in your thesis enough and have proven it out enough. So, you know, as Marco mentioned, the product, you know, a PMF for getting a product that, that has some traction or has some customers or a, is actually a real product. Those are all important things. But, you know, we have this really unique and weird position in that we often see companies extremely early, like way earlier than most publications. So I think most tech press out there will normally start talking to a founder you know, early, the earliest they'll, they'll talk to a founder is that the founder's gotten the team together. They want to kind of start, slowly start building a relationship with the reporter and they'll start talking about what they're up to, uh, especially if they have a, a pre existing relationship from, say, another company that they founded previously or, you know, they were a source previously or whatever. But with Battlefield, we end up talking to companies extremely, extremely early, 18 months from launch. Um, they have an idea, they have a like a proof of concept, they have maybe some IP, you know, that they've patented, but not much else, you know, product. And they said, hey, we promise we'll have a shipping product in, you know, 10 months, eight months uh, on the disrupt stage. And we're like, go through some due deal and see if, if this is right, right? And so we can see this arc of, hey, I have got this thing, and then it turns a corner into something real. And the, the difficulties, the problems come when you have something really compelling, a key technological advancement, uh, a key thesis, and you go out there based on that thesis with no proof that it actually works. And then you get you launch into your narrative and start building that narrative. And you end up in a position of having to sort of retcon everything. And we've seen this retconning go rampant in the last 10 years of tech. Everything from founders disappearing and appearing on uh, co-founders and founders appearing and disappearing on the, uh, on the masthead of the website. You know, hey, who is a founder here? Who is not? Um, the product changing so radically that the name has to be changed of the company to distance themselves from previous launches. So I think that really what it comes down to is belief in your thesis and enough proof, whether, whatever that may be. Like, you know, we deal with companies that are in medical and academia and, you know, coming out of academia where they have a lot of, um, a lot of road to run before they hit the ground, especially when it comes to medical devices and certifications. Um, so you, you're just working on a completely different time scale with things like hardware and all of that stuff. So you have to have that belief that what you have has real value, that the story you're about to tell in public for the first time about it is something that will prove true and prove through. Um, the, the weirdness comes when you're like, hey, I really strongly believe in this, but in order to get customers, we have to launch, right? It's, it's, a, it's an awkward leap. And sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. Okay, so I want to break into the meat of this and talk about some tips for for actual startups trying to get press coverage. But I want to ask you, you know, what are some of the things that actually move the needle for startups uh, in terms of tips for getting press coverage? You know, when I think of a few things that I really think matter a ton, one is basically thinking about how do you pitch what matters to the reader instead of what matters to your business? I talk to a lot of companies where they say, oh, you know, we spent six months building this or five years building this, or this is really going to move the needle for our margins and increase our efficiency. And I'm like, 
But why would the audience care about that? Like that's the constituency of the reporters you're pitching. And so oftentimes I think, you know, founders are so used to having control of so much in their world, being the sort of kings and queens of their little empires, that they aren't ready to sort of give up some of that control and be willing to, you know, compromise on their narrative and saying, it doesn't really matter what matters to my business. What matters is what matters to the reader because that's who the reporter is trying to serve. What is inform- What is informative? What is entertaining? What's going to give them a new lens for understanding other news that they consume? You know, why is this going to be something that they're willing to tell their friends about? I think that's one perspective that's just like a framework for understanding all PR is give up what you think matters to your business. Start pitching what other people actually want to read. Um, Matthew, do you have any sort of overarching frameworks for how startups should think about PR like that or any specific tips that you find really move the needle? Yeah, I mean, I think you're dead right uh, in the. I mean, we've had this, <laughs> we've had discussions about this obviously over the years, but you're dead right in the in the whole. What does it matter to the audience or, or the intended audience, right? I think the one way I would additionally slice that is that the intended audience can be any one of many, um, and even from the same publication or same reporter, because of the state you're in, who you're trying to talk to, all of that stuff. Um, You do have to decide on that, though, and then you have to decide what that audience feels is important. At times, that may be, this will increase our growth margins, right, our gross margins, or this will, you know, put us over the hump uh, the next quarter, or whatever the case may be. I mean, good luck pitching that, but you definitely can tell a story about you know, to a specific audience. And that audience does not always have to be the same audience. It doesn't necessarily need to be your users. Although most of the time with very early stage PR, you want to be talking to the user. Why should you use this product? Why is it compelling to you? How is it going to change your life? Um, And even in some small way, hopefully you're relatively uh, humble about the way it's going to change their life because they'll be pleasantly surprised if it does any more than, um, you know, put a blip on their radar and end up on their home screen. But it, it, it is absolutely imperative that you, you control yourself and not get to in the weeds because the fact is the reporter is looking for something that's compelling in terms of a story or narrative point or a technological advancement. And they will lean into that if they find it. But that may not always be right for your audience that you're trying to reach. So you may be going out there going like, hey, we want people to know that this is going to make it easier for them to get oil changes in their car. But, you know, on, on all of the 300 million used cars in the U.S., you know, we, we feel that this could change that whole business or whatever. I'm just pulling something out of my keister here. This is not an actual startup, but it should be probably. Um, but you going out there with that and then somebody's like, oh, wow, they uh, – they actually built a, 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 a new network of point-to-point hardware devices that people put in their independent repair shops. And these devices talk to one another and load balance the, the uh, oil changes so that it's the most efficient across the whole network, which means more revenue for the individual oil change shops. Now, this is great, you know, and they really lean into this little black box that sits in a repair shop's back room and talk about the technology of that and the message about, hey, this is going to save you money. It's going to save the repair shops money. It's going to make everybody happy. It's going to make everybody more money. You know, all of that gets lost. So you have to be really crisp and clear with your messaging. And sometimes that means not talking about this thing, as you said, it took you five years to do. Or, you know, all this sweat equity went into. Or that you had the most brilliant design meeting over and you had an epiphany and all of this. None of that really matters. 
you know, it matters only to yourself. It matters to your team. Obviously, hopefully it matters to your product, but it does not always matter to the audience. And so you have to be really crisp and clear about, about mentioning that because the writer naturally is going to be looking for a hook, a way they can tell this story um, to their audience. And just speaking from TechCrunch's perspective, we often lean into things that are genuine technological advancements, whether that be in, you know, material science or, or uh, app design, right? But we want something new and fresh and, and interesting. And so you have to carefully speak to your audience that way. Margot, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like on this concept of like how you find the angle or the narrative that makes sense for a company. Like how do you get them to dig into what's going to matter to the reader rather than what's this matters to them? And like how do you how do you push back? Because I think one of the things I would love to see more PAR agencies do is push back against their clients and say like I know this is what you want to pitch, but it's not going to work. And so rather than just like do a big round of failed PR, why don't we like rework the core of the message first, and then we can go out with the the push. Uh, those are both great questions. Um, I guess to answer the first one, first, I mean, it's really great to have access to the senior people at companies. So I think first of all, just, you know, for anybody who's in PR, uh, you know, in the, in the group, like just make sure that your PR agency has access to the CEO and to the CTO um, and, you know, anyone else who's sort of a key executive at the company. Because I think the closer you can get to hearing, you know, why, why the person founded the company why they think it's important, um, you know, if you, even if you haven't talked to somebody on the sales team, what's resonating in the market from a sales perspective, like all that's extremely helpful. So the closer we can be to the executives in the company itself and be able to really hear their story, hear their voice, I think the the more easy it is for easier it is for us to draw out the narrative and to really understand sort of what what that um, what the angle should be. Um, I also think it's important just to pay attention to like what's going on in the news. Um, how can you tie the company and the company's products to what's going on more broadly? You know, is there a significant acquisition that you can then have the company comment on? Is there something going on in Washington? that you could have the CEO comment on. So I think it's really paying attention to sort of overall trends in the news. And then I think for earlier stage companies in particular, really nailing that founder story. Where did the person come from? What was their background? How did they how did they come up with the company? What were the like almost the, the you know the path they had to take or any hardships they had to overcome to to get where they are and to build the business. All that's really interesting and gives like a human element, I think, to the story that uh, might not exist if you're, you know, are just looking at the company's products. Um, so I think all of that, um, you know, paying attention to what's going on in the news, hearing about the company from the executives in their own voice and really sort of drilling down in that sort of founder story are great ways to go. Um, and then just in terms of the... Um, to ask about sort of, you know, pushing back on clients. Of course, that's something, you know, we, I, I totally agree with you. It's important to really be upfront and be realistic about what actually is going to sell in the market and, you know, what you're going to actually be able to tell to reporters. I think that's why actually having reporter relationships is so important because you can say, hey, I just had coffee with Josh. And, you know, he said, here's what he's looking for. Here's what, you know, he wants to write about now, right now. Here's how we can position your company to fit in with that. But, you know, he doesn't necessarily care about X, Y, Z. So really being able to, you know, actually give feedback based on having relationships with the press is really important. So it's not just sort of pushback coming from me. It's actually, you know, feedback coming from direct conversations with the media. I love that. And I'm going to come back to the idea of like nailing the founder story because I have this whole concept around the superhero origin story. Uh, but 
And I, I love the idea of letting whoever is telling your story, whether that's your PR agency or marketing team, interview the actual leads of your teams, the product manager, the engineering manager, the sales manager, the people who are building this product and are on the ground, because they're going to have a more clear uh, and like ground level view than just the founder or the CEO would have. Um, but I wanted to talk about the like tying the company to the trends in the news, because I got so many of these like desk side pitches where it was like, let me like, you know, do you want to talk to our CEO about this like random trend that's in the news right now? And it felt like, how am I going to build an entire story around like this person's trend? It has to like either totally assume I'm like already in the middle of building out like some trend piece around this issue, or it just feels like really thin and spurious. And it always seems super opportunistic to me, like to be like, oh, there's something big happening in Washington. Like, let me like put my founder out there to talk about it. Like maybe occasionally there's going to be like a hit on Bloomberg. TV or something, but like I literally never took a single one of those meetings and I must have received thousands and thousands of those pitches. Uh, Matthew, what do you think about those? Like, you know, oh, let us, let our CEO comment on the like most recent news. Like to me, maybe it's like, makes sense if it's like you're launching a product and you have a fundraise and you want to also mention some of those like things in the, uh, the, in the news and talk about some of the trends that you tie into, but for like a separate story or its own whole pitch, like, does that even work? Um, not for us. Now, I won't say it doesn't work widely, right? Um, there are absolutely, I mean, as Marco, I'm sure, knows incredibly well, there are, there's a strata to the media, right? So you have some publications that need and want kind of broader applicable coverage or need that angle that hooks on to the broader news so they can ride a wave of, say, a package of stories, uh, a front, you know, they, it doesn't jar with the front page of their section, so to speak. So there are absolutely strategies where it makes sense, and I understand that. It doesn't work for us and it never has because we don't, we don't write those kinds of stories. We just don't, right? It, it doesn't make any sense for us to say, you know, like, oh, you know, this, this earthquake happened and now we're going to leverage that to help tell this story because honestly it feels kind of shitty. And, and that's not, obviously, if there are good things, you know, great. You know, that's, that's awesome. You know, oh, hey, uh, you know, COVID vaccine delivery surged and it's awesome. And we have this drone delivery startup and they're doing a similar thing in another continent and they're really helping I get it, right? And it, I mean, it absolutely makes it feel more relevant, but we would never hook the story on that. So you can, it can help the relevancy of the story by tapping into a broader, like, zeitgeisty thing, but specific news events don't really work on us so much, but they can absolutely work in, in the broader context, I think. That brings up a, a topic of reporter and publication uh, targeting, because I think, like you said, if you're pitching a story of like, a, oh, do you want to comment on this trend? Like that's something TechCrunch never covers, but we still get those pitches all the time, which really shows to me that like some PR maybe aren't doing their homework or aren't just like aren't skilled in understanding what to do in terms of that uh, reporter targeting. So, yeah, would love to hear you guys talk a little bit about that. You know, I think this is one of the easiest skills to learn, but it's one of the most crucial. And so I'm going to drop like my my biggest tip for most PR uh, for startups is, you know, just before you decide who you want to pitch, you should be going through all of the major publications and basically Googling their name plus keywords surrounding your topic, whether it's, you know, the, the industry that you're in or major competitors names. And that way, what you're going to find in those results are not just which publications cover your general topic, but which specific reporters are on that beat and specifically uh, write about that topic. You know, if you're writing about haptic engines 
and you know that kind of hardware versus you know telehealth services. You know, they're, they're totally different people that cover those spaces. And I know that all the time I would get pitches about like hardcore engineering topics or hardware products, and like I didn't really cover that. I mostly covered you know early stage startups in like software and marketplaces and uh, and social. And so when they pitched me that, what that meant was if the story was going to have any opportunity, it meant I had to basically re-pitch it to one of my other the one of the other writers at the publication. And first of all, like it's not my job to do that re-pitching. And I don't want to stick my neck out for some startup that I haven't really done a ton of homework about. And so it felt like those stories never really got covered. And so, you know, the one of the things I would recommend most to any startup trying to get press coverage is don't just think about which publications might fit the audience that you're trying to reach. Make sure you know exactly which reporter actually covers your very specific topic. And one easy way to do that is through tech meme. If you guys aren't familiar, tech meme, T-E-C-H-M-E-M-E, it's the homepage of tech news on the internet. They use algorithms and human editors to aggregate all of the top stories each day in tech and rank them by what's most important. And they also pick who sort of wrote the best version of the story or broke the news, as well as uh, aggregating all the other sources that uh, also covered that news. And through that, you can they actually have leaderboards of the top 100 reporters in every different uh, vertical, e-commerce, virtual reality, software as a service. Uh, and you can just for $100 buy this list of the top reporters in your industry. And that is probably the most efficient PR spend that you could ever have. It feels like, you know, something that PR agencies often charge thousands of dollars for. So using those like tech meme leaderboards and Googling the keywords around your businesses and your, your, and your competitors, you can find the specific reporters who are actually most likely to convert on your pitches. Um, Margo, anything that you think about, like how do you teach companies and, and your own employees how to do that reporter targeting or any tricks for finding the best reporter to actually cover a specific vertical? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said. I think doing your homework is incredibly important. And I think the best media lists um, are basically when people really build them from the ground up. So you actually do do the research to understand who's writing about the story, you know, who, who would cover it. And then also not just creating sort of a, a you know, blanket pitch you send out to each reporter, but really, you know, for each reporter targeting the pitch to that reporter and making it clear that you understand what he or she is interested in writing about. You've read their work and you know exactly the angle that you need to take to, to make it relevant to them. Um, so, you know, I think all, all everything you said is really important. I also think like, look at the reporter's um, social media presence. So it's not just looking at what they've actually written. It's looking, what are they tweeting about? So a lot of times they'll actually say what sources they're looking for from a tweet. Um, so I think just be on Twitter, look at their LinkedIn, like really take sort of a, a holistic view at, you know, understanding what they're looking for. And then I also think nothing replaces personal relationships. Um, so I know this sounds a little old school, but I think just going to lunch with people, going to drinks, um, you know, reporters are human beings, like have a conversation and really understand, you know, what, what makes them tick. What do they want to be writing about? Maybe they're switching beats. You know, you'll get extra information from having an in-person conversation. Um, and you'll also be able to have a dialogue that you wouldn't be able to have over email. Um, so again, I don't think anything, you know, absolutely do your homework, just like you said, Josh. And I think it's also important to just have those personal relationships and connections. 
Okay, I have one question about this. So when I was a reporter, I always wanted the pitch to come from the founder. I didn't want to really deal with PR. Happy to have PR help me with like aggregating materials or scheduling meetings, but like the initial pitch, it felt so much more authentic and it felt like I was cutting through so much of the red tape if it came from the founder directly. And yet I frequently hear that PR agencies recommend that they send the pitches on the like or on, on the founder's behalf. And to me, it always struck me as kind of weird as if, you know, the, the PR agency is trying to justify their budget and saying like, oh, we got you coverage in TechCrunch rather than you got yourself coverage in TechCrunch, for instance. And uh, and, and so that always confused me because it seemed like it was a lower conversion rate uh, when, there were, when the pitches would come from the, the PR. Certainly there are some like relationships where the PR person really knows the reporter super well. They can talk to them over text message. They actually know them from real life and they might have an in that you wouldn't have as a founder, but like otherwise, unless the reporter really has a great existing relationship with that PR person, it always seemed like it was better to come from the founder. So what's your take on that? Like, should the founder and CEOs be sending their pitches, uh, especially if they have time, even if they're like ghost written and queued up by their team or the PR, or should it be the PR agency that's sending them even when they don't have that direct relationship with the reporter? Listen, I think that's a really good point. Um, I can totally understand why you know, you'd prefer to get, you know, an, an email from the person you're going to actually speak to and the person who's done the work and is, is the guy in the company versus, you know, an, an agency. Um, listen, I think it's all about scale, right? Like if, if you're a series A company um, or series B or a seed stage company, I totally understand why it would make sense for the founder to send, you know, to send the note to create that personal relationship. I do think once you're, you know, you know, if you're a CEO, and, you know, you have a million things going on and, you know, you do want to have that conversation with a reporter at TechCrunch or Business Insider, Wall Street Journal, whatever it is. But you have, you know, you're running a, you know, a large company. You know, there's a reason you have a CFO. There's a reason you have a, C, you know, a CHRO. And so, you know, there's a reason then you have a press team so they can handle that stuff for you as well. So I think it's just about, you know, allowing a founder to scale him or herself um, and, you know, allowing somebody who... Um, is sort of a professional in this to to do their job just sort of similarly to how a you know CFO would would you know do the the company numbers for example um, so that's how, how always how I've sort of thought about it I hear that but I I just I still feel like the PR agency could just draft the email the the CEO could copy and paste and hit send like it's not that much additional work for the CEO but it feels so much more authentic from the reporter's angle like when I get a uh, in, you know when I got a pitch from a PR person it was like a maybe I'll read this when it came from the founder I was like I'm going to read this pretty much always Listen, I, I hear you. And I, I think, again, for the companies that you, like, especially given the fact that you covered early stage, um, you know, startups, I think it makes all the sense in the world. I think once the it's once the companies are a little bigger, which are the ones that we work with, I, I can see why it's helpful to have, you know, somebody manage this for, for a CEO, basically. What's your take on this debate, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, I, I see exactly where Margo's coming from. And especially once you get some scale and you have a lot of complexity to your business operations, one of the worst things you could do is send that email to the reporter and then ghost them because you got busy, right? It just disappears. Like stuff happens and it can, and absolutely your, your first and foremost focus should be on your business, right? And not on the next you know bit of PR that you're going to have or the next bit of press that you're going to have. But as far as early stage founders, I have covered, I don't know, if I was to just roll the dice and 
back when I, when I was doing a lot of writing, and I'm sure this is true for most of my reporters, I would say that 60 to 70% of the stories they've covered have come from a, you could call it pitch, but really it's a communication between the founder and the reporter. And it could be a co-founder, it could be a CEO, whatever you want to call it, right? But it's a person, a DRI, a directly responsible individual for the company going, we've got this really cool thing, I'd love to chat with you about it, let me know, right? And honestly, brevity is amazing. One sentence from a founder has gotten more stories written at TechCrunch than packets of information from PR firms. And it's not anything to do with how valuable those packets are. Because they, they contain a wealth of information that, as you mentioned, you can tap into to use to flesh out the story. And a lot of times you can read through that and you go, oh, crap, you know, look at the background of the founder. He didn't even mention this on the phone. We run into this all the time with super early stage companies. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm founding an ed tech startup. And, you know, we think we're great. And everything. you look at the founding team, and you're like, oh, cool. You guys you know, seem to have, some, where's the ed tech background? And they're like, oh, my God, I forgot. to. Be, I'm, I was a teacher for 20 years. And you're like, what? You know, why didn't you lead with that? Right. And so, like, it, it, but those conversations happen with a combination, you know, of those resources. So I do find them to be very valuable and good partners overall, especially once the companies get larger. And honestly, access to the CEO becomes harder. Like I can text most of them or, you know, most of the ones I've had a relationship with, but a new uh, founder or somebody I've never interacted with, you, you know, you're going to start somewhere and hopefully that person is, you know, able, easy to work with and you can communicate with them and get where you need to go. Because I've, I've worked with companies as big as Disney and as small as one person in a garage, right? And so I see the breadth of that scope and I see the value in different approaches. But as far as early stage founder, if that's what we're talking about in this conversation, and those are the people in the audience or who may hear this later, I'm telling you that it is incredibly effective to directly address somebody that you want to help tell your story or at least tell your story to them, and hopefully they find it compelling enough to take it further, uh, it does best to you to find somebody who really understands what you're trying to do, or you know they would because of the background of what they follow and what they write about. You're like, oh, they'd get it. They, they would, I know they would get it. You know, they talk about the metaverse in their off hours, right? They're obsessed with it. They're in the Reddit chat. I saw him tweet a link to the, you know, uh, the subreddit of this VR game that's like super tiny. So I know they're like in the weeds on it. I know they're in the discords and uh, in these DeFi discords. I know they're deep. I know they would get this, right? One or two sentences directed to that person is going to be massively effective at the early stage. And then from there on out, I think everything Marco said is, is totally true. It applies. Yeah, I think brevity is such a good point. Like, it's so important to not overwhelm a reporter and basically dilute your information with so much volume that they have to dig through it to find what really matters. And I'd love to hear what you guys' opinions are for like a minimum viable pitch. For me, it always comes down to three things. It's basically the problem. What's wrong with the world? What is it that's making people, you know, uh, unable to advance their business, sad in their personal life? Something that some either a few people will pay a lot for or a lot of people will pay a little for. Um, and then what is your solution? What do you do to actually fix that problem? What is it that, how do you make the world a better place? How is this going to eventually be a big business? Cause there's a huge problem to solve and you have the right solution for it. And then finally the evidence of why you, why are you the right team to do it? Not just that this is the right market or the right product, but that, you know, you are the right ones to be able to execute here because you know, you have, you've hired all the PhDs that are the experts here. You've already built companies in this space. You worked in the industry for 20 years. Uh, 
uh, or you have patents or you, you know, you've built a, you know, a, an engine that can't be rep uh, replicated because you're, you know, you have this natural moat from network effects. You know, what is it that's like the evidence why you're going to be the one that wins? You know, that to me is part of the minimum viable pitch. And, you know, if I had to expand that, I would talk about, you know, what is the, the origin story for the company, the background of the team, the problem that you're trying to solve, the solution, but then also the customer acquisition strategy, the business model, uh, you know, the, the, the adjacent markets that you're going to be able to break into, you know, the biggest, scariest things that could happen to your business and how you're actually addressing them. Uh, and maybe most importantly, the why do you care personally about making this something that is your legacy to solve? Um, what do you think? You know, that's, that's more of the longer pitch once you actually get into a meeting, but that three-point problem solution evidence and then a quick bit of what is the news, that always seemed to work, uh, work best when people were pitching me. Um, Matthew, what do you think of as like the minimum viable pitch and how long can that be? Can you get this across in like two paragraphs? Yeah, I mean, one preferably. Um, the second paragraph can just be like, hey, here's a bunch of people who believe in us, you know, whether that's like investors or uh, current employees, you know, that, that, may, that may be notable or have previous experience, as you mentioned, in the space. But that first paragraph really should be all about, um, hey, we've got a company that's pers that should be, that feels like it will be personally interesting to you. And I'm speaking from a place of somewhat of a privilege at TC because we do get a lot of inbound, right? And so we have the sort of luxury to sort of obsess about certain things. Um, one of the things that people don't know about TC that you obviously do is that we don't have beats. Um, you know, you can, you can slice the apple however you want and you can argue with me about semantics. But what we do have, I feel, is areas of interest. And so we find writers that are obsessed with a particular topic or that become obsessed with a particular topic and maybe take that topic on um, and they pursue it and they get free reign to do that. And I would say of all the stories on TechCrunch, roughly 60% are self-published. In other words, an editor gets involved, you'll get copy editing, you'll get graphic support, you'll get all that. But the writer in the end is the one that controls their headline and their lead and hits the publish button. And so with that situation in play at TC, um, which I know is not the norm, right? And it's completely radically different than from a lot of the other parts of the industry. Um, the, the scenario is very simple. You have to get that writer personally invested in your startup and what you're trying to do because they're going to carry it all the way to the finish line. You don't, you're not pitching a writer who's just like, hey, I have to turn in 10 Word docs this week or somebody's going to be mad at me right? Or five word docs this week. Um, and then I can go home, right? And then it's in the hands of the editors and maybe one day, right? And, you know, I'll, I'll have a feedback and we'll go back and forth and then it'll get published eventually or whatever. They're going to carry it all the way from inception to the page and to the public. And so if you are able to personally interest them and get them invested in what you're up to, that is the key. So in effect, like everything else that you mentioned, super important, but really is all secondary to how do I tell this person what I'm up to in a way that is going to get them personally invested in it? And that, of course, goes back into the thing that Margot talked about, you talked about, which is research, making sure that you're talking to the right writer, not just the right publication. And in fact, the right writer at the wrong publication is much more valuable than the, you know, the wrong writer at a, at a big publication. And this is, I'm sure Margot gets into arguments with founders all the time and companies all the time about this, as, as do all of the people that work there. They oftentimes get obsessed with a particular publication. Oh, we got to have a Forbes mention. We got to have a Wall Street Journal sure. mention for whatever reason. I, I'm sure you, you've heard this a lot, Margo. Yeah. 
<laughs> and, and that, you know, that obsession is, I get it. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure they have all the reasons in the world, right? And whether it's, you know, it, maybe it's in print and they love a print magazine. Maybe their dad reads the journal and they get it, it gets in the journal. Their dad loves it. Maybe they think it's going to get them the right kind of investor, you know, who reads that stuff. The scenario is that you're going to want to find the right person. It's much more important. And if that person is at a publication with a, just a decent, you know, modicum of reach, the fact of the matter is, is that if your story gets written well, and if they really grok it, and if they really understand it, and they write just a, a banger of a story about what you're up to, and it gets the right kind of, it hits the right tone, you're going to be able to use that forever. And I had a founder the other day say, oh my God, you know, he wrote a story about us, and I just stopped using our pitch deck, and I just sent that to investors, and we raised our whole round off of it. And that's not, nothing to aggrandize about like me or my writing, and I'm sure a lot of writers have had this happen. But it just speaks to the general trend that if you find the right person, and you mates with the right topic, and they really get it, and they really nail the story, the rest of it is like that narrative set. And then you can, you can write on that, and you can build on that and everything. But if you have a poor writer, or not even a poor writer, I hate to denigrate anybody's writing skills, but if you have a writer who's not the right match, and they're at a big publication, and they phone it in for one reason or another, maybe they just don't quite get it, or they're not quite as obsessed with it as you are, and they don't get the fine details of why your approach is so important, because we can, we've seen this whole thing happen where niche businesses are, are made or broken sometimes on a few lines of code. And if they don't understand the difference between your implementation and somebody else's and why that's so special and important, they just flood the whole thing. And from then on, it's just a fairly straightforward, basic business story. And you've kind of lost the plot. So that's my whole thing is basically it comes back to two sentences that can get somebody personally invested in telling your story. Toy, what you need is product reporter fit. You can't just pitch anybody. You want to find the re- the best reporter, sometimes even not at the, the ideal publication or the one you were dreaming of, but the, just the person who's going to be the most enthusiastic or have the, has the best expertise on it is going to be able to write the best story that actually has the most impact in the industry. One other thing to that point, you know, you want to pick the right reporter. You also want to just get the reporter to write it more than you want them to publish it on a certain date. I've seen way too many uh, startups you know, miss out on great press because they say, no, we have to launch this Tuesday and you're like, that's not enough lead time or I'm sorry, I'm like out on vacation that day or I already have four other stories due before then and they just are like, well, we're sticking with our launch date and rather than being flexible and getting the best press, they get nothing on the date that they wanted, which is like, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, rather better to have, you know, one times one than two times zero. Uh, so I, I've always really have stressed that reporters should be flexible. Um, so what we're really talking about is this teaser pitch, as I call it which is like the first contact between a company and a reporter that helps get them interested in the story. Margo, what do you see as like the best template or things to include or the minimum viable teaser pitch? So, I mean, I think what you said is exactly right. I mean, honestly, I wish I could um, have you give a little seminar to, uh, to, the, to my team members at Edelman, because I think what you said is, is perfect. Um, so explaining sort of, you know, why should, why should the reporter care? Um, whether it's an interesting founder story, it's, you know, a really interesting product that's disrupting a certain industry. Um, and then in an ideal world, you know, examples of customers or people that have used the product. Um, you know, I, I think just showing why people should care and why it's relevant now, um, whether it's, you know, a funding round news or a product or tying it to something that's going on in the world. You know, why, like, why does it matter right now um, is, is why the reporter should write. So, you know, I, I think what you said earlier is, is, is exactly, 
is exactly what should be in that, um, that opening pitch. And I do think, again, you know, having some sense of what the reporter is looking for, ideally from having a conversation with the reporter personally, but if not, at least just doing sort of your homework before you write the pitch is also very important. So it's not just generic, it's tailored to what the person's actually interested in. Okay, I want to hear a quick round of like red flags, things that like, you know, pens, if you see in a, in a picture, just like, all right, we're not covering this. Or the Margo, if you see in like the, you know, the materials that a startup wants to use, you're just like, oh gosh, no, please don't use that. <laughs> like to me, there's always the like things of like, you know, a few that I always, that stuck out to me were always like, can you help me like grow my business or get my business out there? I'm just like, yo, my job is not to help you. It's to inform and entertain and advance my readers. Like you are not my constituency. So when people ask me for the, to write a story basically as like a favor to them, especially when I don't know them, I'm like, okay, big red flag. Another was like when people describe themselves as being like the next Facebook or the next Uber, it's one thing to be like, we're Uber for X. Sometimes, you know, not always the most eloquent way to describe something, but it can be useful in shorthand. But when you're saying we're going to be the next X or Y, it just makes me think like, no, you want to be the next you. Like you should be doing, trying to build your own thing. If you're just trying to like emulate somebody else's success and to you success is just being as big as that company rather than solving some certain customer's needs, that always showed them like you don't have the empathy for this. Like you don't actually care about them. Um, Or when people were really just super cagey about like what they would share with reporters when they're like, you know, we really can't talk about that. It's one thing to be like, we're not going to disclose like revenue numbers or something, but when they won't even tell you like how the product works or like anything about like how they're going to spend the money, anything like that, it makes me think like you're so scared of other people copying you that you're actually like blocking off your own opportunities. You're getting in your own way. And in reality, like it's so much more about execution than ideas that if you're so worried that somebody else is going to steal your idea, it must be because you have weak execution. Um, Pans, any, uh, any specific red flags that you would see in stories, which you would just be like, this isn't happening. Yeah. I mean, I think those things are true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pitching, pitching something at, based on a story that's unrelated um, you know, oh, so-and-so wrote about this, so you should too. That's a big red flag. I don't give a shit, you know, what anybody else wrote. And in fact, it's probably a negative versus a positive uh, that somebody else has already written about it. Um, you know, we obviously we're, we're breaking news, you know, we're not, uh, we're not trend pieces for the most part. We do some of that on the subscription side where it comes in handy and people can act as resources. Um, I would also say that the idea of people's, you know, the, the idea people have of what your job is, is huge. Like, as you mentioned, like your job is not to do them a favor. Um, I think a lot of people come into a pitch um, sort of with the, with a viewpoint that they are going to tell you what to write. And this is really crazy that it still exists and still happens now. Uh, but, and that most of the time, you know, you course correct them and they're like, Oh, okay. Okay. We see it a lot though, out of super early stage companies um, out of accelerators. And I'm not going to name any of the accelerators. I'm not going to put them on the spot. I don't know what training they're doing. I don't know if it's just the founder. Well, I do know. It's a lot of times it's the inexperience of the founder, right? So it's not just their coaching, but it's just a founder doesn't know how things work. And a lot of times if they're coming out of a very powerful program or a powerful accelerator, they will often feel very entitled to coverage and feel very entitled to tell their story exactly they want, the way they want to tell it. So being able to have the right attitude where like, hey, you're trying to get them interested in your story. It's not a favor that they're doing of you. And you're not, you know, subordinate to the journalist, quite the opposite. You're, you're on, a, on a very equal footing. You're people in this universe trying to tell a story. The journalist is trying to tell their story. You're trying to tell your story. And if it's a good match, you're going to meet well. 
But if you come into it hard charging and kind of like a lot of mandates, a lot of controlling things, as you mentioned, about time, about the shape the coverage takes, about obsession with like publishing on a certain day or being a feature story or, you know, some sort of particular type of shape that that takes, um, you're going to have a bad time. Now, obviously, at later stages, all of this is becomes much more like negotiation, as I'm sure Margo's experienced a lot. You negotiate with publications about placements and about like, hey, is this an A1? Can we shoot for that? You know, all of that. And I know that comes into play. For early stage, though, it really is about engaging a person. So if you come into it with a lot of demands, it's a huge red flag right away. And I'd almost rather back off and see what comes of it, you know, of your company first, because it's, it's not pleasant for the most part, to deal with people like that because they tend to get extremely entitled very quickly. Um, I think it's also a situation where you sometimes overcome those things and go like, God, you know, this person seems to be kind of a pill, but the technology is amazing and the company is amazing. And maybe they're just nervous. Maybe they're just freaked out. Maybe they're inexperienced. And you have to take, you have to bring empathy to the table and, you know, you work through it. But I, I find those things to be kind of grating sometimes when they happen. I know a lot of my reporters do. The more experienced ones know how to separate that out uh, from, you know, their feelings about the company and the technology and kind of go, yeah, you know, the person's kind of a pill. But, you know, let's let's figure it out. I think they've got something really interesting here. Let me calm them down and we'll have a chat. Right. Um, and that usually builds relationship and, and works pretty well. Um, I don't need experts. Uh, I and Margo mentioned customers who have used the product. Honestly, I don't find that very helpful. I know sometimes it can be woven into stories, but if a founder or a company or PR is providing me with customer quotes or people that have used the product and I can tap them for um, you know, insight uh, or quotes or whatever, I assume all those people are compromised. Um, you know, those are, and, and not in a bad way, it's just organic. Like if you're, if you're pitching me somebody, obviously they're going to say good things. Uh, you know, like, why would you pitch me somebody who hates a product? So I ignore that for the most part. I really rarely use those every once in a while I have, especially if it's somebody incredibly notable who has, you know, a reputation for really not caring. And they're like, look, I, I don't care, but I love this thing. It's awesome. But most of the time, not very useful. Um, and then, you know, stuff where it's incredibly formulaic. Uh, obviously, those are mistakes that a lot of uh, a lot of comps outfits make um, where they pitch you on formula. I one step above a merged list uh, and all of that stuff. It just, it's not even that I don't, I count it against the company. It's just that it turns into gray, right? It's, you're looking for a pop of color in your inbox or a pop of color in a message, you know, messaging platform somewhere. And if it's all gray, you're not going to pay attention to it. You're going to be looking for the pop of color. And so that, that standardized templatizing of pitches um, really doesn't work on me and probably doesn't work on a lot of seasoned reporters um, because they're sort of inured to it all. Um, and they're sort of numb. So you have to puncture through all of that. That's great advice. Yeah. I think the, the entitlement thing is a huge part of it. Like when, whenever somebody would pitch me being like, here's your headline or like, we can write the story for you if you want. And like, you could just publish it. I'm like, what do you think this is? <laughs> like, it's like, it's pretty offensive to like the craft of journalism to even assume that that would be how things would work. Uh, even if you're relatively, uh, un, you know, unversed in how everything does exactly work. Um, also I always found it annoying when people would send me like the press release and basically like no information in the email and expected me to 
like dig through this attachment, you know, and all these like, you know, this like really sterile text to find what actually mattered about the business saying that like they were covered in one of our competitors recently. We're just like, that's like exact reason we wouldn't cover something like most publications want to be first or they want it to be like a great deep profile and trend piece. Not like, oh, your competitor covered us yesterday. Do you want to cover this now? That always like struck me as really strange. Uh, also, like, you know, when companies wouldn't have news, but they'd see that a reporter wrote some wrote about one of their competitors and then they'd pitch them the next day like, oh, we also exist. It's like, you know, but not only is that not news, but you I also literally just wrote about this industry yesterday. Like, I'm just going to bore myself and my readers to tears by doing the same thing over and over again. I will will say that there's one case where you can use this to your advantage. Um, if you pitch, let's say you're a startup uh, and you have a funding round and you pitch that funding round um, or your your uh, PR does, uh, your comms people do, and you go out there and you get you know, get some coverage from various publications, but you don't get maybe the one you want or the reporter that you really wanted to take it up. They don't grab it for whatever reason. Too busy, as Josh mentioned, you know, they're incredibly busy, have a backlog of stories, it's too soon. Any number of reasons that don't include, I don't like this, right? Or I'm not interested. Because those those may not even factor in at all. If you really want coverage from that person, go to that person and convince yourself and your comms people and everybody involved, including your investors, to give them more information. So if you want follow-on coverage on, say, a funding round um, that didn't – or let's – this happens. It's crazy to me that it still happens. But people obscure for one reason or another, strategically and tactically, uh, the amount raised, the valuation, uh, the investors involved, the who led the deal um, – where the, the money lies, uh, sometimes even disclosable, naturally disclosable financials of the company, if you can offer them additional information that sweetens the pot and that they can hook that on, they will then tell this, probably the same story they may have told otherwise, right? But they have a new piece of information that can compel them to provide something unique to the reader. Because at the end, if they are a part of a good publisher, a good organization, they want that organization and that publisher to provide unique value to the reader day in, day out, continuously with momentum forever. And if you want to do that, you need to provide your readers unique information. And that can come in the form of analysis, unique insights, or raw information that was not included in other stories. Now, the the analysis and insights part, you can't force on a writer. Either they're going to get it or they're not. But you can provide them additional information that was not included in other stories. And that often helps sweeten the pot. Yeah, I know that Alex from uh, from TechCrunch has mentioned that like sharing the valuation can be a powerful way to get reporters more interested because it gives you a much better sense of like the overall size or health or at least the expectations for a business. You know, you can end up painting yourself into a corner there as a startup. There is a risk that like if you, you know, if you raise that round and that valuation was maybe a little bit too high for you and then it's going to be a struggle for you to exceed it in that follow-up round, you know, you might end up being, you know, asked like is this valuation higher than your previous valuation and you might have to admit to having a down round or a flat round which can look really bad for your momentum so that's the one caveat that I would say is like you know to warn startups like if you're thinking about sharing some of those hard numbers like revenue or valuation you could get painted into a corner but if that's the only way that you can get the press you really want or need it can definitely sweeten the pot for the reporters uh, Margo do you have any uh, specific like any red flags or things you really to like advise startups not to put into uh, to press uh, material or pitches? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I have red flags about deciding which companies to work with, to be honest. Um, mostly I just want to know that when I work with a company, we're going to be able to be successful. And I think sometimes when you work with really early stage companies, you end up sort of getting 
pulled into the um, sort of, you know, the the workings of the company, which, and if they're not functional, then it sort of hinders your ability to be successful. So I always want to make sure, like, do you have somebody who can actually be the point person to manage press and manage an agency on your side? Um, rather than, you know, sometimes startup founders are like, oh, well, I'll do it. I'm like, you think that now, but you have so much go- other stuff going on. Like, you either need a CMO <laughs> or head of comms or, you know, someone who's going to be the agency point person. Because if we don't get the right information from you guys, we can't be successful. So I think, you know, to me, just, you know, again, making sure that we can be, we're, we're working with a company that's ready for an agency um, is is incredibly important. So that's that's the first thing I'm just in terms of like a red flag of like, you know, is, is the company actually, um, you know, ready, ready for an agency? And then just in terms of, um, you know, information to put out, I mean, I don't, all the things that you've talked about, I mean, hopefully no one from Edelman's ever done that, um, just because it seems pretty, pretty, pretty egregious, the, uh, the red flags that you were talking about, Josh. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping you've never gotten an Edelman pitch like that. But, um, you know, I, I do think, you know, like you said, when, when I were, when, a company is fixated on a certain publication or a certain reporter. To me, it's sort of that that's a red flag in the sense of it's like, let us, let us help you figure out where the news actually belongs rather than sort of, you know, vice versa, telling us we're working backwards from, you know, where you think you should be. Um, let, let's help you figure out where, where you, where we can actually be successful. So I think that that's sort of one, one red flag, um, for sure. Um, and then I just think it's important to be sort of open and honest and truthful in conversations. So, you know, make, just making sure that the, the executives prepped, um, and, you know, ready for any, you know, tough questions they might get, but that they're also not necessarily, um, yeah, that they're, that they're, that they're ready for their, that they're, you know, completely ready for a reporter to, uh, to potentially ask tough questions. Yeah, you definitely don't want to ever lie to reporters like we will find out or they will find out soon enough. Uh, it will always come back to you. And so, yeah, doing proper preps, so you have answers to the hard questions. You don't have to lie, but can tell it truthfully, maybe in a way that frames your business like it's not so bad after all, I think is, is super important. Uh, so. And I'm going to share some of the top takeaways from today's uh, talk, some incredible insights and tips for startup PR. If you're out there building something in the startup space and you could use help with PR, that's one of the specialties of our fund, SignalFire. We're a billion-dollar fund investing seed to Series B. I run our PR advisory program and help our companies think about their narrative, think about their superhero origin story, think about building out that, those teaser pitches. And so if that's something you're looking for help with, uh, as long with things like recruiting through our Beacon technology, which helped us make a 1,000 candidate intros to our portfolio companies in a single year and helped us get a 96 MPS amongst founders, come check out what we We've got uh, going on at Signal Fire. I wouldn't have left a, a really good job in journalism uh, working for Matthew here if it wasn't a, a pretty interesting fund to come work for. Um, so a few big tips and takeaways from today's talk. You know, there is basically an insane number of fa- funding rounds and product launches happening. It's way more than people could really handle. You know, TechCrunch is seeing like two to three dozen giant funding rounds, thousands of pitches per week, uh, and it's it's becoming a lot harder to break through that noise. You need to be able to be willing to share more and have a more compelling narrative. It used to be that like big funding rounds could easily go broad and get covered in a ton of outlets at once. Now you more likely have to do an exclusive to be able to get that kind of coverage. And you need to be thinking about PR as part of a holistic growth strategy, not as the only strategy. You should be thinking about LinkedIn, influencers, your well-known friends, getting everybody else to share uh, your product and building products that actually share and, and grow themselves. Um, and you know, press can help you warm up a lead. Uh, it can help with fundraising later, drive some of that FOMO 
and herd mentality amongst VCs. Uh, it can help with partnerships and momentum of your company, giving you that third party proof point. But probably the most valuable thing you actually get out of startup PR is recruiting. It's by talking about why your challenges are exciting, why your company is going to be a rocket ship, why there's, the company may grow underneath somebody who comes and joins your company. That's going to be really powerful. And in such a heated talent market, that's super important. In terms of risks, like it's, you know, you have to make sure that you have the product ready for the customers and that influx that you, uh, you actually have the onboarding set up, that your company isn't going to implode, that you're not going to give away your trade secrets or be too distracted from building your product. Um, but, and you can't just go out there with a thesis of like, oh, this is what we think is going to happen. You need evidence that you actually have, that this is actually going to happen. You can't just exist and you can't just have a funding number. It needs to be a real narrative about why people should care about it. Um, and you need to let, you know, let the PR storytellers or marketing people on your team interview the team to be able to help find the angle that's really going to matter. Because in the end, what the only thing that really matters is that you get the reporter interested and that you're serving their audience. It doesn't matter what matters to your business. It matters about what matters to their readers at the end. Um, you know, you can try to tie your company into some trends in the news, but not all reporters have actually covered that. Um, you can nail your founder backstory about why you are the superhero origin story, why you're the Batman of this industry, why this, this problem murdered your parents and you are going to have a blood vendetta to go and solve this issue. Um, and in, but most importantly, you know, think about what, which reporter is the right fit because you need that product reporter fit. Otherwise it doesn't matter if they're at the right publication, doesn't matter how good the news is. A lot of times they either can't or won't cover it. And so, uh, when you're thinking about actually sending those pitches, you know, brief is better. Ideally, especially for earlier stage companies, have the founders send those pitches because they're going to be, get a lot higher conversion rates. You know, uh, Matthew said that 60 to 70% of TechCrunch stories come from some direct contact with the founder, not just with a PR agency. Um, and I think if the PR agency is telling you that they have to send the pitches and you, they won't let you do it, they probably are just trying to justify their spend. Um, what really matters in a pitch, you know, problem, solution, and evidence, but to boil it down even further, it's just why does this reporter care about this space? Why is it actually going to matter to them? Because you need that internal champion that's going to either get them to carry that story all the way over to the line or convince their uh, editors that it really matters. Some things you really want to avoid is saying, we're the next X, we're the next Facebook, the next Uber, talking about somebody else who wrote about the news at another publication or their competitor already, saying that you need help from them. It's not the reporter's job to help you, being too cagey about actually sharing information that can make the story much more interesting, telling the reporter what to write, giving them the headline, offering to write the entire story and acting entitled in that way. Um, or, you know, just focusing on like your, the customers rather than like the, you know, and you know, a list of customers or a list of investors instead of why the product actually matters to people. But really at the end of the day, what matters the most is this, that you are pitching something that the readers will care about, not just your business. Um, and so uh, Matthew from, uh, from TechCrunch, Margot from Edelman, do you guys have one quick final statement about like, if you could tell startups out there, you know, some one last thing that they really need to know or something you hope they take away from this talk with, what would you tell them? Uh, Matthew, maybe you go first. Um, yeah, my, my big takeaway is be helpful. Nine times out of 10, this is probably the most important skill for you to um, sort of generate and maintain. If you are genuinely helpful to reporters in your industry who cover your field extremely well, and you are an expert source because you know that very well and you're building a business in the space, um, they will remember it. That's how you build relationships outside of, hey, we have an interesting company for you to look at. Uh, and it has built a lot of relationships with me over the years. And I know for most reporters. 
I think the be helpful advice is great. I think that's incredibly smart. And that goes for any PR professionals here as well as to be helpful, obviously, to your clients, but then also to reporters. I completely agree. Um, and then just for sort of more, you know, early stage companies, I think, you know, two pieces of advice. The first is sort of pick your moments so you're not going to get, you know, a story a week. So I think, you know, really prep for those moments that are newsworthy, whether it's a funding round, whether you have, you know, somebody going on to your board, whether you have sort of a new product launch, um, a major customer announcement, like really pick what those newsworthy moments are and then figure out who to take that news to. Um, And then secondly, think multi-channel. So of course, it's important to get, you know, great stories in publications like TechCrunch. Broadcast is also great. Um, It's a really, you know, good um, uh, medium to um, sort of get, get your message out there. Clubhouse is great too. So is LinkedIn. You know, there's a lot of sort of owned content channels that are increasingly important. So don't just think about traditional earned media. Think sort of multi-channel in terms of how you're you're getting your news out there. Amazing. And I'll give my final tip is find the human story, the superhero origin story. My favorite is Jan Kuhn from WhatsApp. His family moved from the Ukraine to the United States when he was young. They couldn't afford long distance phone calls with family and they felt super isolated. He didn't understand if it was just data moving over a line, why should it cost so much money? And eventually he built WhatsApp so everybody in the world could stay in in touch with the people that they love for free. And when they got bought by Facebook for $19 billion, he signed the papers uh, for that acquisition on the steps of the welfare office where he used to collect checks. You know, that's the kind of story that, you know, an investor, a reporter is going to say, you're going to stop at nothing to make this succeed, to solve this problem. And those are the the kind of persuasive stories that reporters want to tell. This has been my absolute pleasure. I hope this helped make you your own chief storytelling officer. We will see you next week. I'm Josh Constein from Signal Fire. Thanks for listening to Press Club. Farewell. Farewell.